The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight we are going to have a satsang which is slightly shorter than usually due to the fact that uh, at the same time we have a couple of other events happening in the school. One of them is that um, the one which is open for all the school is that uh, at midnight we celebrate the entry into a new astrological year. It's one of the greatest astronomical moments every year and that is known of course as the spring equinox, the exact moment of it is around midnight. That's why those of you who can be awake at that time still and who still have enough strength to sit up and meditate, we are doing there approximately a half an hour of meditation, which is uh, hiatus meditation for those of you who have encountered the concept before. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, I <clears throat> will not have the time to explain it in detail. A hiatus is a concept which was introduced in spirituality by Gurdjieff in the 20th century, and it basically alludes to the fact that there are discontinuities in the fabric of time, exactly as the hiatuses are in music, in musicology. And... Uh, one of the most important hiatuses of the whole year is when one astrological sign, when one astrological year actually ends with the end of the astrological sign of the Pisces and the new astrological year starts at spring equinox starting with the astrological sign of the Aries. This particular moment happens tonight at midnight it is a coincidence from our standpoint here that it is at midnight. Of course, on each time zone on this planet, it happens to another moment. So that's one of the activities. Also, from the standpoint of the Vira groups, there are some rites of passage which happen immediately after this satsang is over. That's why we'll have to end in good time. Last week I had started speaking about some of the truths of spirituality as announced by the Buddha, by Gautama Buddha. We spoke about spirituality from the standpoint of many traditions. Generally we focus on yoga. We had here comments from the Yoga Sutras, comments from the Bhagavad Gita. We also had comments according to the Gospels in the Bible, the spiritual truth presented in the words and in the style of Jesus. And in this way, we intend to look at the spiritual truth from as many sides, from as many angles as possible. Last week, as I said, I started presenting some simple elements, such as the four noble truths, Buddha, as I said, had this metaphysical intellectual style, slightly Asian, slightly Chinese, because 
It is especially in Asia that you find these classifications which say the ten causes of regret, the eight signs of success, I'm an exact number. And Buddha, as he started presenting his spiritual message in a very rational, almost mathematical way, to a certain extent Buddha has been a great rationalist of spirituality. That's why in a very atheistic age, like the age in which we live today, people accept easier a Buddha than a Jesus. A Jesus seems too mystical, too extreme, too firebrand, too sectarian, too based on faith, while Buddha seems to be based on rationalism, common sense, logical deduction, like Everybody can look the way Buddha has looked and see old age, disease, death, suffering. And looking around, one will realize that there is nobody who is exempt of those plagues of life. That even great yogis sometimes had distress, disease, they all of them... If they lived long enough, they got old and they had to endure the vicissitudes of old age and all those things. And thus, what I'm saying here is we started with the four noble truths put in the way of Buddha and we analyzed a little bit what he says, how does it fit with the statements of yoga. And I will now continue with a few of the words of the Buddha, again, trying to stop uh, in the, at some crucial points of it and trying to analyze it from the standpoint of yoga, like how much that is expressed in the language of yoga and give explanations where things become a little bit expressed symbolically, metaphorically, in a very occult way, and at the same time, trying to see how that integrates in the environment of tantric yoga, which at times seems to be so far from the original message of the Buddha, although paradoxically Buddhism itself, especially in its Tibetan branches, has managed to build a Tibetan Buddhist tantric yoga around exactly these principles of Buddhism, which proves that ultimately with goodwill, It is possible. I would like to quote a few simple words of the Buddha describing the goal, the state of enlightenment, in his very first sermon, which traditionally is considered that it was given in India at Sarnath, and where he addressed the famous five bhikkhus, bhikshus, the five monks. The story is that Buddha, for a while, spent time with other five spiritual practitioners, bhikshus, monks, ascetics, and uh, they tended to, they had the tendency to dismiss Buddha because Buddha, at some point, has discovered the, the famous principle of the middle path, which was expressed under the form of the dictum about the string of a lute that if you stretch the string of a lute too much, it will snap, and if you let it too loose, it can't play music. 
and therefore to play music, the string of a lute has to be stretched just as much as it is appropriate. From this, Buddha had the final revelation of the middle path, which is expressed in so many other spiritualities of the world. For example, Krishna himself in the Bhagavad Gita in a completely different spiritual environment from a certain standpoint, theistic and all the rest, Krishna says to enlightenment reaches neither the one who sleeps too much nor the one who sleeps too little, neither the one who eats too much nor the one who eats too little. And he continues saying eventually to enlightenment reaches the one who finds this golden middle. We often try to or we often manage to miss this golden middle because this golden middle is in a certain way the very consciousness of Atman. It is what Kashmiri Shaivism calls Madhya. It is the golden middle. Even the Latins had it as a philosophical expression and very often it is misinterpreted. It was uh, one of the ancient Roman philosophers who put it under the name of the dictum Aurea Mediocritas. Aurea, Aurum in Latin is gold and Mediocritas, Medium, it means the middle. The golden middle. The middle is golden. But Mediocritas can also be mistranslated as mediocrity and then it would sound like mediocrity is golden. It is preferable to be mediocre like not too stupid, not too brilliant or something like that. That's not what the philosopher said. It was an expression of the thought of the Buddha. And great philosophers tell us that this midpoint is the expression of the consciousness of the self, of nirvana, of the void, of the divine consciousness, in which the human being has a certain equanimity. It's like I, be play, I can be placed in the middle and things don't move too much to the left and they don't move too much to the right. On the contrary, human beings being conditioned by the mind, the mind is exactly like computers. It works on a binary code style. It is zero or one. In computer languages, there is nothing between zero and one. It's either zero or one. It's black or white. And the mind always tends to go into dualities, into vikalpas, like a computer working in binary code. So the mind has attachment or indifference. It jumps from one extreme to the other. I'm trying to convince you to quit smoking because smoking is not good for you. But if you won't listen to me for three months, I get angry of you and I dump you. I say, okay, if you don't want to listen to me, then screw you, see if I care. Like I jump in the extreme, the mind always either wants to patronize you or it wants to jump into indifference and almost a form of aggressive indifference, like I don't care. This is the mind. Always when we work by the mind, the mind knows no midpoint. The mind knows only extremes in its functioning. In the moment when you manage to find this midpoint, which is so hard to understand by the mind, the mind hates this midpoint because the mind says, are you white or are you black? Decide, this doesn't make much sense. In the moment when you manage to go there, in that moment you have the aurea mediocritas, the golden middle pro promoted by Buddha himself. 
And Buddha, after having discovered this middle which led him to nirvana, then he wants to address those five monks, telling to them, look, besides your tapasya, besides your determination, which is laudable, it's praiseworthy, like you are having at least motivation and aspiration, but it is a little bit misguided, this inner fire of yours, and I have discovered something deeper than this. So he says, do not despise me, because at some time he was in a strong fast, and then he simply, according to this principle, he dropped a little bit of his fast, and he was eating something. And then the, the five monks, they thought he was a glutton. He was a man who had lost his willpower. They thought he was a dropout from the path, and therefore that he was in a pitiful condition. And on the contrary, he had actually reached enlightenment. So he was coming to tell them that he had discovered a truth which was subtle and not easy to understand. That's why I'm reading the discourse as it is rendered by the traditional Buddhist literature. Addressing the five bhikshus, Buddha said, Do not call Tathagata. Tathagata is a name, is an epithet of Buddha. He himself now is Tathagata. It is uh, tatha, tatha means into that, tat is that, and gata is gone, and gate, gate, para, gate, para, samgate, and therefore tathagata is mean, it's an epithet which is a little bit derived from gone into that, like crossing, having crossed the river, having crossed into enlightenment. So he says, do not call Tathagata by his name, like Gautama. Hi Gautama, how are you? Nor address him friend, for he is Buddha, the Holy One. As you can see, it starts on a pretty abrupt note, and uh, he doesn't bother to pretend that he is humble or modest or something. He simply says, we were six people in a team, and we were just, uh, you know, calling each other... Gautama and John and Walter, but that's over. Like he comes directly from a position and he says, now I'm talking from a different place. So he says, I am the Tathagata and calling me by the name is not appropriate. Um, you could say, well, doesn't this prove pride, arrogance? We discussed many times about this. Spiritual personalities have a very, very well-defined ego, only that this ego is not an egocentric, limited ego, which pushes them to be demonic, dark, possessive, and other things, but it's not because they lack personality or because they don't trust themselves. When Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me is scattering, is wasting, that's a total, total ego. And yet nobody can say that Jesus was a monster of selfishness and egocentric. He had a very powerful confidence in what he was and what his meaning was. And at the same time, he was not egocentric. That's a paradox which is difficult to understand. Because for most people, if they get ingrained into an idea that me, 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 I'm so important then automatically this will turn them into terrible monuments of selfishness. Buddha also, you know, he speaks about himself like about a king. He says, do not call Tathagata by his name. 
it's exactly like I would say, do not call Swami Vivekananda by his name. Like, whom am I talking about? Like, I'm sitting right here. Why am I talking in the third person? This is exactly how you talk to the, to the kings in the protocol language. You go in the presence of a king, and in the presence of the king, uh, you say, but I don't wish his majesty to understand that uh, I have done this, or, and his, his majesty is sitting right in front of you. Like, why are you talking to a person sitting in front of you, to the third person? Like you say, I don't want his majesty to misunderstand my intentions. You could at least say, I don't want your majesty to... Un but no, in protocol you don't say that. In protocol you speak about the king as if he is not present there, as if he is somewhere as a, th as a third person. And Buddha talks exactly in the same way about him. He speaks about himself exactly like Jesus. He says, for the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served, but to serve. Who's the Son of Man? It's him. Why didn't he say, for I did not come to be served, but to serve. He speaks about himself like he's a third person somewhere. Showing exactly this uh, detachment from the ego to a certain level. And showing a very special spiritual status which is attained. This shows a mutation in consciousness. Can it be faked? Yes, of course it can be faked. Because any crook can study the language of a Jesus or of a Buddha and try to duplicate it, fake it, like talk about, start talking about themselves in the third person and similar things. It can be faked, but in the case of Buddha, we know historically that this is, was not faking. We know that Buddha was the real thing. So he said, do not address him, friend, for he is Buddha, the Holy One. See, um, Many gurus in modern times, because the guru institution has suffered so many decadent blows in Kali Yuga, like its spirituality is less and less present in Kali Yuga, they have made compromises on this. Many of the gurus and teachers proceeding from the Zen lineages, from some of the Tibetan Buddhist lineages and others, there have been great discussions in the 60s, 70s, early 80s about, you know, that the Western tradition, the Western civilization is having some qualms about this guru, guruship thing. And then how can you address it? What is really a guru from a certain standpoint? And some of the Buddhist practitioners of Japan, some of the Zen senseis, roshis of Zazen and of other traditions, they wrote articles in which they said, well, basically, if you have no other choice, you can consider a guru like a spiritual friend. The guru is your spiritual friend. It's like a brother, a sister on the path, somebody who is more advanced than you, who has been where you are, and therefore the guru should be considered the spiritual friend. To eliminate precisely this allergic reaction that like Buddha wants to be a friend. But when he teaches this 25 centuries ago, the society was different. People were different. The Indian world was very different. So Buddha simply says, realize that I am talking to you from the standpoint of enlightenment. 
and if you come too close, you are just going not to see the forest because of the trees. I have known a situation of a spiritual, a female spiritual teacher who was organizing spiritual theater and other such events, and I spoke with one of her disciples, another woman who was part of that theater, and she acknowledged she had been in the company of that woman for five, six years, and then she said, this woman, because we are a theater, we live a little bit in a bohemian way, like actors, and you know we are having these artistic lifestyles, and uh, a bit hippie-like, and she shared everything with us, and uh, most of us have actually forgotten who this woman really is, like what her spiritual gifts are, simply because of living too close, like starting thinking that, oh, you can clap each other on the shoulder and just be friends. Buddha is um, of an old-fashioned type. He's coming from 25 centuries ago, and he says, until now we have been brothers, now I am the Buddha, so pay attention, because what I'm telling to you now, it's not like, don't call me Gautama, my friend. It's fine from the standpoint of my ego. It's fine if you call me my friend Gautama. But you're not going to value my message. Because your friend Gautama chit-chats with you. Buddha talks wisdom to you. Your own subconscious mind makes yourself close down if in some moments you are not listening as you are listening to the Buddha. He says, Buddha looks equally with a kind heart on all living beings, and they therefore call him father. So he says, I'm not the friend, I'm, not, I'm the father, image rather. That is another guru archetype. The guru can be seen as different things. The guru can be seen as the father. Of course, we live in, the, in India 25 hundred years ago, the father was the father figure and it was sacred, it was holy. Even when you watch American movies showing uh, westerns from the pioneer times of America or even up till 1950s, when even a 16-year-old boy was talking to his father, he called him sir and kissed his hand. Like there was a sort of patriarchal respect for the father of the family, which was so very much lost in the last 70 years that we almost can't see it anymore. And it sounds preposterous today because so many fathers are sexual abusers, alcoholics, violent, this, that, that many people would say, what? What father figure? I can show you some father figures which are totally pathetic and totally, you know, to flush them down the toilet. Because people always take the worst example, it's Kali Yuga, they use it in a competitive way according to their ego, and they do not refer to the archetype. When Jesus wanted to show an image of God which is loving, and at the same time higher, and at the same time very God, Daddy, Ava, by the name by which the Hebrew kids of his time they were calling their father. It's the baby name for daddy, for calling your father. 
So it's a very loving appellation for uh, the name of God. So Buddha himself on a different meridian, he says, I am to you more than a friend, I am to you rather a father, which in that environment, remember it was India 25 centuries ago, when the father was an almost religious figure in the family, in the structure of the society of that time. And he says it very clearly, and again it can be taken like, is this guy arrogant? He says to disrespect a father is wrong, to despise him is sin. Basically, it's like Jesus said at some point, you all know at least vaguely the story, that Jesus is betrayed by one of his apostles to be. And he says, one of you is going to betray me or something. And then he comments generically and he says, for that man, it would have been better if he were not born. So even Jesus, who forgave everybody and committed a sort of a conscious, deliberate self-sacrifice, and Jesus says about the man who was to betray him or betrayed him, and betrayed him not in a very malicious way, that's the paradoxical thing, because even when you analyze the orthodox history in Christianity, Judas did not tell lies against Jesus, or he just confronted him with the priests. He said, come on, enough is enough, let's go to showdown. And when he did that, Jesus, the forgiving, the loving, the eternal, and all the rest, he says, to that man, it would have been better if he were not born. So, um, there, is, there is a dharma in this universe. As much as we want to speak about forgiveness, compassion, both Buddha and Jesus, who are both giving messages of love, forgiveness, and compassion, they both of them speak about the existence of hells. How can there exist hells in a universe governed, ideally, at the highest levels, governed by compassion, forgiveness, and love, because hells are necessary even when there is love, because sometimes hell is the expression of love. By tasting hell, you learn your lesson in a loving way, which is difficult to see. We can't see love when somebody is thrown in hell, and yet the divine consciousness accepts the existence of infernos, and of the fact that millions of souls are in different infernos right now as we speak, that Joseph Stalin's and others of their kind probably are in hell as we speak, and they are there in a universe which is governed by love and compassion. It's very easy to make cynical, sarcastical fun of this because it sounds almost like ridiculous to confront those two. And that is why Buddha simply says to, he, he presents himself and he says, now I have a spiritual status, which like, you know, you guys, you disrespected me, but okay, you didn't know what it was. Now I came to show you clearly who I am, and that's why I listen. Basically, Buddha says, if you want to disrespect me, then better go away. Then don't disrespect me. Simply forget about me. Pretend I don't exist. Ignore me. 
when they were crucifying Jesus, Jesus prays an incredible prayer. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Tibetan Buddhism says there are seven or five or ten karmic errors which are horrendous, like they are top. And one of them, the first on that list, is to kill your mother, to assassinate your own mother. And the second or somewhere on that list is to shed the blood of a Buddha. Like that's considered by Tibetan Buddhists to be like you don't know what you are playing with. You don't realize what karma is coming from there. It's exactly like you would have, try to imagine somebody who became a reformer in a soul. Try to think somebody like, I don't know, let's say Mahatma Gandhi in India or somebody like Martin Luther King in the United States or somebody. And then let's, tr- let's say that a person does the following bargain. Mahatma Gandhi, and then I'm going to go and save not one, three other people from death. I'm going to do some heroic act, be on a beach somewhere where people are drowning. And every time I see somebody drowning, I jump in the water. I'm a very good swimmer. I swim and save their lives. I killed one. I saved three. It's basically like I'm on the plus No, you are not, because the one which you killed was Mahatma Gandhi, and the other three were cannon fodder. There were three anonymous people. In democracy, everybody is equal with everybody. In the eyes of God, not everybody is equal with everybody. If you kill Gautama Buddha, you change the history of the planet Earth to the bad, to the worst. If you kill Three peasants from the, 20, from the 5th century BC, nobody will know the difference. Nobody will see the difference. People are equal today, socially and democratically and legally. But in, as importance in the universe, try to think what the universe would look without Jesus, our little universe, without Jesus, without Mahatma Gandhi, without Plato, without a number of people that have changed this world. And that's why uh, Buddha simply says, it's better not to cast stones if you don't know what you are doing, because you might... Buddha simply says, you guys came to the point where you are talking bad about me. It's a sin. Without knowing you, you are doing a sin, because I am not Gautama anymore, your body. I'm not Gautama, your body. I am the Buddha. I, you, you can call me a spiritual father. And he says it very clearly. You see how light he says it. He says to disrespect the father is wrong, to despise him is sin. And then you can say, and what do I do if I really don't like you, my dear Buddha? I mean, you may be a Buddha, but still I being a human being have the right to dislike you. Yeah then go away. Get out of my face. The earth is big enough for you to live your life and for me to do my thing. You don't need to trespass in that way because you are playing with forces which you don't understand. A person like Mahatma Gandhi, a person like Buddha Gautama, they have on their shoulders so much that if you do the slightest disturbance in that direction, 
the karmic consequences can be completely disproportionate. And then for the next 200 lifetimes, you are born schizophrenic and in a personal hell, not knowing why you are not happy ever. And you say, what could I have done to uh, suffer so much? That's what you could have done. You may have simply disturbed the activity of a Buddha somewhere because you have been too much full of arrogance and pride and you thought that it doesn't matter, that Buddha is just like everybody else. This sort of thinking is a thinking without anahata and Buddha coming from not only the Asian but Indo-Asian environment, he sees this anahata thing very well. The polarity of anahata is superior, inferior. And people that have no anahata, the cultures that have no anahata, they don't wish to see this superior, inferior thing. When I lived in Denmark, I heard with displeasure about a Danish phenomenon, a Danish folklore, which if many, many Danes will get enlightened in history, probably it will have to be extirpated surgically from the Danish collective subconscious mind and history and flushed down the toilet. They have in Denmark a famous law, which is called the law of Yante, which is the complete epitome of not understanding superior and inferior. It has about seven subdivisions, but the main one says, let nobody think that he is somebody. And the kind, of the kind of corollaries to it are, if you see Buddha, make him sweep the floor, you know, so that he understands he's one of us. Like even Buddha should not think he's somebody very important. It's a sort of Svadhisthana water chakra democracy, like let everybody be reduced to exactly the same level as everybody. There are no mountains on the water. There is just a sort of millimetric flatland all over. And it really happens. I have seen in Denmark Tulku Lamas from Tibet who were the 11th incarnation of some Tulku Lama and who were members of the Dalai Lama's government in exile, both politically and religiously, who when they emigrated to Denmark, they, have been, they had cleaning jobs in a high school. They were going in the night and sweeping the floor. No. Good old Danish culture. Let nobody think that he is somebody. You know, you are a Lama, you are a Tulku Lama, go and do the dishes, you know, like everybody else. It's very good for the ego. But it's not very good for the karma. Because you do that to Buddha, Buddha will not personally get upset. Because he has nothing to get upset about. But you are reducing yourself to ignorance. The universe is backfiring on you and is saying that's how you treat the Buddha. Stay another thousand years in ignorance and see no light in the end of the tunnel. No, like there is end indeed. When I was talking with my pupils in Denmark in those days, they told me an incredible thing. They said, do you know that in the whole history of Christianity in Denmark, which is about a thousand years old, there has been not a single Christian saint that has been Danish. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah? That's why many of you come to me 
and I tell you, work on Anahata. And you say, why Anahata, Swami? And I'm telling you, because you come from countries, you come from cultures, you come from families, you come from educations, where there is no Anahata. And because of this, you don't even know how to treat the Buddha. If the Buddha would appear tomorrow in front of you, you would say, hey, Buddha, and you would make the sign of the devil. This is the sign of the devil. It's a goat with two horns, and it was brought by the secret societies, Churchill and others, pretending that it's a sign of victory. It's not the sign of victory. It's a diabolic sign which imitates the devil with the two horns. It's a goat with two horns. Eh? That's what the secret societies use it for. This is how the masses are fooled. You see Japanese tourists taking photos. They all do the devil. They do the mudra of the devil, not knowing what they do. Everybody is shaking hands. You know that the shaking hand is a recognition sign of secret societies in the West? It's not the way the Greeks and the Romans did it. When did the handshaking? Today, if you don't shake hands with somebody, you are impolite. But actually, you are imitating blindly the mudra. This is a mudra of secret societies. And you are becoming a second-hand follower of those secret societies. And the list could continue. The list is endless. And that's why I'm saying, yeah, you say, Hi, Buddha, you are a cool guy. You are disrespecting the Buddha, and you might have a schizophrenic life in the next life. It's better not to meet the Buddha and not to say anything. If you are a fool, you know, it's exactly like Jesus said. Because people said, what's so much fuss about you are coming right now? And like situation has been like this for 300 years. Why do you make so much fuss? And Jesus says, now that the Son of Man has come on earth, the wheat is going to be separated from the weeds. And everybody has to make a choice. Like now, it's not possible to, to run on two horses at the same time. You are with me or you are against me. As long as you don't meet with a Buddha, you don't know if you really respect Buddhas or not, or if your heart has a feeling of superiority and humbleness or not. But in the moment when you beat with, with, meet with Buddha, involuntarily that Buddha becomes your test. And most people today would fail that test because they don't know how to behave to Buddha. Buddha is very nature, very simple natured about it. He simply tells them to the face, I am something else. The transformation which has occurred has made me into something else. Pay attention because it might be, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. And he continues, the Tathagata, he himself, the Buddha, he speaks in the third person does not seek liberation in austerities. But for that reason, you must not think that he indulges in worldly pleasure, nor does he live in abundance. This is his very philosophy, and he concludes by saying, the Tathagata has found the middle path. This is already a major change, which has allowed some Buddhist schools even to go into the tantric stream of thinking, because if it is not only about austerities, then you can simply find a midpoint into the other things. There are some religions which openly preach torture, pain. There are religions which absolutely praise suffering. Like whenever they talk, like in the Catholic Christian religion, 
if they talk about Mother Teresa, I've seen so many documentaries about recent mystics, Mother Teresa, mm, Padre Pio, also some older saints like John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, and other great saints, many of them incontestable and beautiful people. And always, always, always when their life is presented, it is always highlighted how much pain they had. Wounds on their body, diseases, lying in bed, agonizing, people being nasty to them, getting beaten, getting tortured, getting persecuted. Like this is the whole essence. If you have been the punching bag of the samsara, then you are a saint because you've suffered a lot. Not all the spiritualities and all the religions would agree with that. That is a path which is a misinterpretation, in my wider sense opinion, of the words of Jesus who says that people should follow me. The narrow interpretation of this is that you should get crucified like Jesus because then you truly follow Jesus. And basically it's advocating a life of suffering. If you have a life of if you don't have a life of suffering, you can't be proclaimed as a saint. Everybody would say there might be typologies which progress through adversity, and this is the truth. We are not all and the same. Some advertising, some marketing and advertising research has created a research on thousands of people in France. It was done, and they took two little pieces of paper, and on each one of them were written three words. They were just two sets, six words all in all. One card on which it was written something like health, richness, joy, and one on which it was written disease, pain, sadness. And then people were simply coming, the cards were put on the table and they had to choose one of them. Yes, no surprise, 99 point something chose the one with joy, health, and richness. But guess what? There have been about 0.3% who chose the pain and the disease one. Because there are people who are having this self-punishing, masochistic, self-destructive, anarchistic, topsy-turvy, no, they want to vil punk like self-vilification type of thing. And for such people, there exist pathways like the Agora path in the Indian Tantra and others which are going through terrible places because those people don't feel that they deserve the love of God, which is the love of oneself. I love you, I love Rumi. So it is to reach that. These people can't reach that unless they whip themselves hard. You've seen people in movies with people in the Philippines who on, Christmas, on, on Easter, they crucify themselves live with nails on crosses. People in Islam and other religions who beat themselves six hours non-stop with whips until their back is raw flesh. It's like full of blood. Like why do people do rituals and things like this in which they punish them? For why punish yourself? Why would you consider that if you endure so much pain, then you are going to be a more beloved son of God and you have gained some merit? This ultimately... It's a pretty twisted psychology, and the funny thing is that it catches. It catches. When you live in a world of suffering, it catches. For many people, pain seems to be a sort of just payment 
for some things. And that's why people accept it and even glorify it. Buddha has somehow veered from it. Not complete, not jumping to the opposite extreme. And he says, if I'm telling you that I'm not searching liberation through asceticism, you might not in automatically jump to the conclusion that I have jumped into forgetful worldly pleasures or living in lush richness or something like that. He, it's somewhere in the middle. He says, the Tathagata, he himself, has found the middle path. There is a third thing in which the alternative between the fact that you have or you don't have, it is tough or is not tough, doesn't really exist. That's not what matters. One is not hypnotized by this, oh my God, look at me, how what a tough path I follow, or something like this. This has been surpassed. There's a beautiful legend in the lives of the 84 Mahasiddhas of Tibet, and of Nepal, Tibet, Himalayas, north of India, in which one of these Mahasiddhas was honored. A king wanted to honor him. And this guy told him, I am a Buddhist monk, and I can, by the rules of my order, I can only have a robe and a begging bowl. That's all. So whatever chariots of gold you want to give me there, I simply can't receive them. It's against the order. Not because I don't want to uh, respect your gift, but because of the rules of my order. And then the king was tricky, and he gave him a begging bowl. He said, okay, can I at least give you a begging bowl? And he gave him a begging bowl made of solid gold and encrusted with precious stones. Just to say, I want you to be the most special beggar in my kingdom. You know, I want you to be, everybody to see that the king honors you. The king personally has given you this begging bowl. And of course, sometime later in the night, like months, years later, a thief, a robber came to steal it because everybody knew that this monk who was living alone in the jungle was having a begging bowl which was worth a fortune. And as the thief came by night to steal it, this guy could hear it. He was doing meditation or he was awake in his sleep and he could hear that somebody was just around his tent. He was sleeping in a hut in a tent. And then he realized immediately why would people sneak around his tent at night except this is a thief and what can a thief steal from him if not the famous begging bowl. And then he just stretched his hand and threw the begging bowl out through the door. And the thief was, couldn't believe his luck, you know, he just snatched it and ran. And then half an hour later he came back and he said, I am totally restless. I got this so easy that I have like, why did you throw it out of the tent? You know, it's like, why did you want to make it easy for me? And the guy said, if you would have got in, you might have thought that I wanted to defend it or something. And you, you would have done violence and things would have done even worse for you. So he said, I wanted indeed to make it easy for you because this begging bowl doesn't mean anything for you. And then this guy had a big process of consciousness. This guru gave him a tapas. And then eventually he became converted. And he became the disciple of this old man. And he became also one of the 84 Mahasiddhas. Simply because somebody showed him the middle path. Like I'm sleeping in a hut with a begging bowl made of solid gold and encrusted with stones. And I can give it up like this. I can just throw it out the window in a second. Exactly like in the famous poet of Rudyard Kipling which is mentioned, if, which is mentioned in your first level papers, as a westernized example of wisdom. 
and continues Buddha in his famous first sermon. These were the first teachings which Buddha gave when he addressed five old comrades on the path. He says, neither abstinence from fish, nor flesh, nor going naked, nor shaving the head, not wearing matted hair, nor dressing in a rough garment, nor covering with dirt, nor sacrificing to fire, will cleanse a man who is not free from delusions. Here it's an overwhelming list of what people did in India, in Tibet, in Nepal, in Asia and throughout the world. Some people think that if they are naked, if they rub themselves with ashes, if they abstain from fish or flesh and they go vegetarian, if they shave their heads or whatever, then they will be cleansed. Buddha, like so many other authors along the time, simply says the same thing. He says it's not about castes, it's not about the caste system, it's not about stupid regulations, it's not about all these religious rules. These religious rules, they are a placebo. If you are going to go to Maha's naturopathic and uh, medical healing and the workshop next week, you are going to find out that medical research demonstrates that in any form of healing, the placebo is anyway worth 40%. 40% of the healing is done by placebo. That means they can give you cow dung and call it Chinese medication and it will still have 40% healing effect on you if you believe in it. So therefore, people can believe that if they shave their head, this is going to be a change of life and a purification. And that change of life and purification will have a 40% effect, but it will not go the full Monte as Buddha wants to go. So he says, pay attention, because the world is made of a lot of superstitions, and Buddha was a great enemy of superstitions. He said people all the time think that if you mat your hair or you wear bad clothes or you do a fire sacrifice or this. In India, everybody on Kumbamela goes convinced that if you bathe in the Ganges at the right time, at the right place, all the sins of a hundred previous lifetimes are going to be wiped out. And millions of millions of millions of people are coming to do that. And as Vivekananda said, the great Vivekananda who was Indian said it, you know, and I cannot be accused of what an Indian said. He said, look, look at the shit in which we are in India and everybody believes that they are washing out their sins for a hundred lifetimes. And he said, look at the karma which is around. Look at the situation which exists around. Therefore, please remember that Buddha is a great, he says, they cannot cleanse, cleanse a man who is not free from delusions. That's the problem. People have delusions. People imagine. I saw, because the nature of humanity is to be dominated by Svadhisthana. And when people are on Svadhisthana, they live in a world of dreams. Many of you who come to spirituality, you are having a vision of spirituality which is Svadhisthanistic, which means... Let's put it in a very nice way, because Vadistanistic always so sounds a little bit insulting. It is actually a vision of spirituality which is romantic. 
romantic. Like the person has to have a sort of romantic enthusiasm, like the sexual infatuation. When you like somebody sexually, and you are so infatuated with them, and you live a romance. And that romance produces a bit of a spontaneous transfiguration, and so on. In, in communist China, in Gandhian India, in communist Eastern Europe, people were even preaching a virtue which was called revolutionary romanticism. Like, you should not romanticize with girlfriends. You should romanticize with a revolution. Che Guevara, you know? Like, be in love with a revolution. See what a wonderful world will come when we'll finally spread the revolution everywhere and we'll win. Everybody will be happy. There will be equality. There will be no more exploitation by a man, of a man, by another man. And all that bullshit, which we saw where it led in time, it was unrealistic. Osho Rajneesh kept a speech in the early 1970s, which is published still today, but less not in the main trend. It's called Beware of Communism. Because even in India, communism was strong in the 60s and 70s. And some people ask Rajneesh, what about you, Baba? What is your opinion about communism? And he said, if everybody would be a Buddha, you could truly create communism. But as long as people are selfish, communism is going to fall apart because some people will start cheating. And in the moment when they start cheating, the whole thing is falling apart. Because people don't have virtue. If people would truly have virtue, then you could build a more equalitarian society in some ways. So what I'm trying to say here is people have delusions. People imagine that spirituality will give them something. For example, people can hardly imagine that great gurus have been sick some of them with severe diseases. People can hardly imagine that great gurus that we praise, some of them we have photos of them on the walls around there, that great gurus have been weirdos, that great gurus sometimes have been plagued by emotionally unresolved conflicts, and still they were great gurus. Because people have the romantic delusion that in the moment when you reach enlightenment, all your problems are solved. Like you cannot even get a herniated disc in your spine anymore because you've become the Buddha. But some people laugh and they say, hey Swami, I don't think anybody believes that. I think people understand that you can get a cut or a bruise. Okay, so if you can get a cut and a bruise, can you get a brain damage? Can you get Alzheimer's, for example, if you are a guru? Ah, no, no, that, no. No, why not? What difference is between a break in your, in a disc in your spine and a break in your brain or in your nervous system? It's absolutely the same. There is no red line. And therefore, one should understand that spirituality itself is looked like a solution to all the problems. People think that if you reach enlightenment, You've solved all the problems of life. 
health problems, physical problems, energy problems, emotional problems, mental problems, social problems, financial problems, karmic problems. It's not true. That's not the definition of enlightenment even according to Buddha. That's why uh, people usually have a shock. No? Like I remember that um, I think Suzuki, when he was speaking about his guru, his Roshi in Zazen, a great, great master of Zazen, I forgot his name, he was speaking about his great teacher and he said the most exceptional and unusual thing about my teacher was that he was so ordinary. He said he was just an absolutely average person. Like there was nothing exceptional about him. He was not walking on water. He was not pretending to have an IQ of 200. He was, he was just a very average person in appearance. And that was exactly his way of celebrating the middle path. Like this paradigm, which refers to something else, but which appeared also in the title of a recent movie called Mr. Nobody. I can't even remember the name of that guy. So indeed, he must have let a frequency in the collective subconscious mind, like, I am Mr. Nobody. I am everybody and nobody. I am just, you know, I am the man, like Jesus says. I am the son of man. I am humanity itself. That is why it's very important for you to think that in spirituality, many of you are coming with hopes and delusions. And my observation being a teacher is this, most people when their delusions are falling apart, when their illusions are not met, they get angry, frustrated, they feel betrayed, they feel empty, they feel lost, because they came with hopes. Even Yudhishthira, the older brother of Arjuna, he is goaded by Krishna to fight a holy war. Krishna is taking the five brothers who are the good guys in Mahabharata and he's telling them fight against Duryodhana and the bad guys, the bad guys, they are from the previous Yuga, they are the decadent people, they have to disappear, you guys are righteous and dharmic and you are going to create a brave new world, the beginning of a new Yuga in the history of humanity. And Yudhishthira and his brothers fight tooth and nails, they fight to the bone, they fight totally, and they win. And then Yudhishthira, when he's about to die, he's becoming a pilgrim and he's roaming, and he goes in paradise, he finds an entrance to paradise, and he enters in paradise, and there he finds Duryodhana and his brothers, their enemies, banqueting in paradise. And he says, that's totally wrong. These were the bad guys. Like, what sort of forgiveness, what sort of absolution did they get? that the bad guys whom we beat and who created a war where hundreds of thousands of people or whatever have died, these guys are now in paradise. It's like you go in paradise and you meet there with Joseph Stalin. It's like, how is that possible? What's a... And then he says, if these guys are in paradise, then where are my brothers who are the good guys? Like, if the bad guys got this, then what did the good guys get? Something even better? And... His father, Dharma, who is like a voice because he's non-corporeal, he's a transcendent principle. His, his father, Dharma, is telling him, you don't want to know. Don't ask. 
at which he goes stubborn, of course, as you'd expect, and he says, no, I actually do want to know. And then he is taken in a stinky, dark dungeon, which looks like a hell, and there he hears moaning and groaning in the dark and wailing, and it's his mother and his brothers. The good guys are gnashing teeth in hell. And then he says, this can't be right. This is a total mistake. And then Dharma, his brother, his father, who represents the cosmic wisdom, is basically taking him to enlightenment because it's telling to him, thus, O Yudhishthira, the last veil of your illusion has been dissipated. You know, like you thought that it's as simple as that. Good guys go to heaven and bad guys go to hell. You don't understand anything. You still live in a romantic, not to call it Zvadistanistic, illusion that, you know, everything is romantically right and God is a sort of uh, romantic hero who takes the good guys and throws them into hell and uh, the bad guys into hell and the good guys in paradise. What if it is not so? Are you still prepared to do spirituality? Are you prepared to put your life into finding yourself and finding God and finding the truth? What if the truth is nothing of what you expected? Because people want to hear exactly what they want to hear. They want to be told what they want to hear. But what if things are very, very different and it's not what you like to hear? Are you still prepared to surrender then? No, they are politically correct things. What if God is politically totally incorrect? No. Then how is your surrender? How is your aspiration then? This is an angle which is very powerful and we see it all the time. That people come with a Svadistanistic romantic view about what they expect to be. And this is a delusion ultimately. And Buddha says it very clearly. I've seen many people having delusions, thinking that if they shave their head, that if they make thousands of kilometers of pilgrimages, that if they do this, that if they do that, this is just self-suggestion ultimately. And it will have some effect through the power of suggestion and placebo, but not total, not unless you know how to take it to the total place. There are enlightenments through the power of faith, but that's not where Buddha is going. And he continues saying, reading the Vedas, making offerings to priests or sacrifices to gods, self-mortification by heat or cold, and many such penances performed for the sake of immortality do not cleanse the man who is not free from delusions. Again, it continues exactly in the same trend that people always think paradoxically that they can buy enlightenment. If I give enough offerings to some temples, if I kill enough buffaloes for zoos, if I do enough self-mortification, I'm going to be offered enlightenment. Always, always please think about this simple fact. Enlightenment is the equivalent of the Western Christian expression eternal life. How can one get eternal life by performing any amount of effort? 
how can an amount of effort which you do during 80 years, let's say you start doing tapas since the age of two, and you do tapas until you die, how can all that tapas buy yourself eternal life? People say, oh, but I probably have done 15 lifetimes of yoga. How can 15 lifetimes of tapas buy you enlightenment? When enlightenment means something which is infinite, it's eternal life, eternal. Meditate for a second on the word eternal. Eternal is eternal. It simply means with no end in advance and after. There is no end. How can you gain something which is eternal by performing a limited amount of effort? It's not possible because you are not buying it. You are not trading it. The enlightenment is a consciousness shift which happens through grace. And it's a free gift. Even if you did yoga for 25 lifetimes from morning till evening, when it comes, you still realize that technically you didn't deserve it. Technically you couldn't have bought that. The gift is way too big compared to any effort that you would have made. And that's why the only reaction in front of it is gratitude, is hallelujah. You know, it's like, how could I have gotten this, you know, without praised be the Lord, because I don't know how this came to me. And that is why meditate constantly. What are your delusions? Many of you are here for the sake of spirituality. What do you expect from this spirituality? You expect non-stop pleasure, choirs of angels singing for you non-stop in paradise, what do you expect? That there shall be no more violence around you and so on. What, what is really your expectation? If, if you were to be a Buddha tomorrow, what's your expectation about it? What sort of Buddha would you be? And how would the world be? And you are going to see immediately that there is a lot of projection, that there is a lot of delusion, a lot of wishful thinking, really, not realistic. Think how many Buddhas have lived on the face of this earth. Because it's not only Gautama Buddha. Many of the Buddhist masters have been called a second Buddha, like Milarepa and Padmasambhava and so many Bodhidharma and so many others. No? That's why I say so many Buddhas have lived, so many Jivanmuktas have appeared in India and in other places. So many Christian saints performed some of them incredible miracles. And the world continued to have tsunamis and terrorism and domestic violence and smallpox and cholera and plague. And no, like somewhere there must be a very big delusion where people are waiting for a savior on a white horse to come and just improve things. And even when you are that savior and you got your white horse, like what are the delusions which come with that? A Buddha is always the enemy of these Vadistanistic delusions. There, are, there exist sometimes some Manipuristic delusions, like a rigorousness, that you expect God to be like a sort of judge in a court. There exists some Anahata delusions, because Anahata people, still they are not fully enlightened. They live in Vayu Tattva, they live in the air Tattva. And the air Tattva is still one of the elements of the universe with its limitations and its conditionings. And even in the air element, there are illusions. Either you are earth or water or fire or air 
or even in the ether, the fifth element, it's still not yet the full realization of spirit. And that's why um, Buddha is an iconoclastic teacher. He simply says, people live in so many illusions and I pass through them like you, my brothers, and I have reached beyond them and now I can see indeed. And he continues. He says, anger, drunkenness, obstinacy, bigotry, deception, envy, self-praise, disparaging others, superciliousness and evil intentions constitute uncleanness, not verily the eating of flesh. This statement was favored by Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna, the super, the hyper-orthodox Hindu, said exactly the same thing by taking the statements of the Buddha. He said, there are people for whom, there are people who are vegetarian and they have so much poison in their heart that it's for them life is so poisonous and unspiritual as if they were meat eaters. And there are people who eat meat and at the same time they are so pure inside in their intention that their life is as clean as if they were vegetarian. Ramakrishna in Hinduism were eating meat 150 years ago in Bengal in Ramakrishna's environment would have been considered totally inconceivable and still Ramakrishna said such bold words. It is of course that from this a similar statement exists in Christianity where Peter sees a has a vision where he sees a lot of impure food. The Jews were having some peculiar regulations about food. And Peter sees some of the animals and so on from that impure food, things which were not kosher. And God is telling to him, take and eat, you know, because this is my something which I have given. And he draws the conclusion that all these too much food regulations, all these kosher rules and so on, they are artificial and actually what comes from the heart is right. All, all such statements in Buddhism and others, they unfortunately are twisted by people who did not find the middle path in this extreme. Because Buddha says it is not uh, the eating of flesh which is constituting uncleanliness. It's other things which come from inside. Uh, but this does not actually mean that Buddha advocates the eating of meat. That would be the opposite thought. If Buddha says that it's not the eating of meat which is dead, then the opposite thought, the black and white, the zero and one, would go going in the opposite extreme and saying, then we can eat meat. Buddha is not saying that. Buddha is simply saying, if you happen to be vegetarian, which is good for a vast variety of reasons, some of them having nothing to do with spirituality. If you are a vegetarian, don't think that being a vegetarian is enough. Don't lie on the laurels of victory and simply think, haha, I'm vegetarian, my soul is half enlightened already, I'm already on my path to nirvana. Kularnavatantra, a fundamental text from North India, says if vegetarianism would make people enlightened, then all the cow would have been enlightened long time ago. No? Like cows would be enlightened because they are strictly vegetarian, but they are just silly animals. And therefore, it's not vegetarianism, but it doesn't mean you have to jump in the opposite extreme 
just to demonstrate the point. Yes, you can demonstrate the point, but Buddha doesn't even need to demonstrate the point. He's beyond one fact or the opposition of that fact. And therefore, he continues by saying, let me teach you, O bhikshus, because now they are not his disciples, that's when they actually became his disciples, when they understood that this man had finally reached the goal, which they are all looking for, and he was worthy now to be his, their teacher. He says, let me teach you, O bhikshus, the middle path, which keeps aloof from both extremes. This middle path is not loved by many people. There are many, many people who are unwise. I think there is a Greek philosopher, Plotinus or somebody, I forgot exactly who, one of the Greek philosophers, who says, he has a short statement which says, do not cry, do not laugh, but understand. Many people, if you tell them, live your life not crying, not laughing, understanding. They would say, Swami, you are condemning me to death. Like for me, life is to laugh, is to cry, is to like... People really love these extremes. Equanimity, for most people, is like a sort of death. It's like boring. This is samsara, indeed. This is the call of samsara. In Tantra, we can integrate even these extremes. That's the beauty of it. But remember that the, there is a way of appeasing these extremes and many people don't like it. Like everything which is demonic, it is extreme. For example, Indian doctors consider that Rajas Guna, is, which is a very big obstacle in evolution because it distracts us, it creates too much desire and ambition. Rajas Guna is characterized by every taste in food which is extreme, like according to most orthodox Ayurvedic understanding, sugar is rajasic, salt is rajasic, everything which is pungent, burning, too sweet, too sour, too hot, too this, is rajasic. And there are people who say, if I don't eat spicy, tasty food, it's like I'm not alive. It's like bland food, is boring me to death. Exactly, that's what I say. We can say that in a certain way, an Oshava diet, a rice diet, is a sort of a middle path type of diet. Like it has no salt, it has no pepper, it has no sugar, it has no, it's just a very middle thing where you just nourish your body and that's it. So of course, here you have to understand that if any one of you is a person who is in search of some intensity, like you say, but Swami, really, I won't even come to yoga. I want some intensity. Either that intensity is some great, crazy orgasms, or tasty food, or amazing sunsets, or whatever. I want to have this extreme thing. Then you have to be able to handle these extremes by a teaching such as Tantra. In the original teachings of Buddha, Buddha was not teaching a tantric path. Later Buddhist teachers, as well as later Hindu teachers and others, they have taken these doctrines and they have developed them and where they said, what if 
we still would like to be able to go into some extreme experiences, then how do we handle that? How do we handle the fact that we are getting out of the equanimity of this middle path? Then how do we handle that? Because we are going to create big waves and then there must be a yoga of the big waves. This yoga of the big waves, yoga which works with emotions, with pleasure, with intense things, that's precisely what tantric yoga is. That's why it's a different, exceptional type of yoga which makes place for experiences of this kind. And so Buddha continues a little bit more. I don't know if I'll manage to finish this brief first discourse of his, but at least we got some of the spirit. I'll continue on the next one. He says, by suffering, the emaciated devotee produces confusing and sickly thoughts in his mind. Mortification is not conducive even to worldly knowledge, how much less to a triumph over the senses. He simply says, if you cultivate one extreme, like most people who don't do spirituality, cultivate the pleasant extreme. When you ask people, what do you want to do? What, how do you want to live your life? People say, I don't know, I just want to have fun. Which means people say, with all my five senses, I want to feel pleasurable stimuli. Nobody wants to feel painful stimuli, exception made of those 0.3% who choose the other card in that marketing experiment. There are a few people whom the very beginning they want to torture themselves, they want to vilify themselves. But all the rest, they go by the, the least resistance, the path of the least resistance, where they say, I want to please myself. I want, to, I want to eat good food. I want to have nice, pleasant feeling clothes. I want to sleep in a comfortable bed, in a good house. And all, everything has to be pleasant. Nobody wants displeasure for them. And that's why Buddha says, it is paradoxical to see that in spirituality, you get a handful of people who believe that by mortification and torturing, they are going to reach. But actually, he says, this is generating great negativities negative resonances in their aura. How can self-punishment and pain generate a blissful approach eventually? He who fills his lamp with water will not dispel the darkness, and he who tries to light a fire with rotten wood will fail. Of course, the comparisons are countryside comparisons, Kerosene lamps, butter lamps, oil lamps which burn as versus water which is incombustible or the rotten wood which is already degraded in structure. Here the metaphor continues without, it simply says it's not possible structurally, it's not possible from the very beginning. Like this is one of the greatest delusions that by punishing yourself you are going to get to some spiritual accomplishment. You see how many illusions Buddha dispels and that even after Buddha, people kept doing it. And many Buddhists, many Buddhists, they ate sand. They did all sorts of austerities which are incredible. And you can ask yourselves if they actually read the words of Buddha or if they read the words of Buddha, if they really understood and where was the spirit 
what was the loop in spirit which allowed them to still do extreme things when Buddha said things so clearly. Continues Buddha saying, mortifications are painful, vain, and profitless. And how can anyone be free from self by leading a wretched life if he does not succeed in quenching the fire of lust? The fires of lust. No? Basically, Buddha, like you can't say it, he says mortifications are painful, vain, and profitless. Actually, if we expand the field of understanding in the way of yoga, we can say mortifications and all this, they are not profitless completely because it's tapasya. And tapasya can generate, for example, paranormal powers. There are people who by mortifications and other austerities, they obtain some paranormal powers. But Buddha doesn't care about paranormal powers. Buddha thinks that paranormal powers are still vain and profitless because he thinks that, okay, you get a paranormal power, but you are still in samsara, you are still in delusion, you are still wandering aimlessly, you didn't find yourself. That's why the point of view of Buddha is really middle path and it allows non-tantric and tantric interpretation. And that's why Buddhism has been able to develop both those wings. He says, and how can anyone be free from the self? This is one of the sentences, probably the last which I'll get to comment tonight, which is uh, creating a lot of confusion in Eastern spirituality. Because many times Buddha stated this thing that you should be free from the self in the meaning that this idea of an immortal self is a sort of delusion in itself. Because when people think about an immortal self, people think about it romantically, svadistanistically. The typical idea, there are a few beautiful uh, novels written by a French fantastic writer called Théophile Gautier, and Théophile Gautier writes one of them, there's a beautiful one called Avatar. And uh, in Avatar, Théophile Gautier describes a sort of a guy who could do a sort of a pova. He could take the soul out of a body and put it in another body. And the literature of Théophile Gautier is pretty good. He is a good writer. He is, he's writing good quality. He is acknowledged, he remained in history as one of the skilled, very expressive type of writers. But his expression is on Svadhisthana. He is writing a fairy tale. He is writing a myth. He is writing a Walt Disney thing. It's a cartoon in which some magician and the soul is like a bright butterfly which comes, unlocks from your heart and comes out through the top of the head like in Pova and then it can descend in another body. Like people are given by this imagery which is practiced in spiritism, in Christianity, in almost every religion. People are given to believe that actually you have a sort of a stable soul. And that soul is like uh, the utmost treasure to be guarded. And it's like a butterfly that is hiding, hiding in your heart. And that's who you are. And then it's coming out and it's going to be preserved and so on. The, the Tibetan Buddhists, they say it very clearly. When you go to Ajna Chakra, you discover that that's just a hilarious metaphor. It's something made for the masses. 
It's a kindergarten story made for Svadistanistic people because when you really see it with discrimination, it doesn't look like this. There is no unit which... Where, where is your unit? If I'm going to ask you who you think you are, like, tell me, write down five things about what you are and five things that you are not. You are going to see that those ten things which you wrote on paper, at least nine of them are completely, completely aligned with your astrological profile. The problem being that in the previous life and in the next life, according to the hypothesis of reincarnation, you will not be at all born in the same astrological sign and configuration. One of you who is a Scorpio feels very much of a Scorpio. One of you who is an Aries feels so very much of an Aries. And if in the next life you are born as a Gemini, and if somebody would remind you how you've been in this one, when you were an Aries or a Scorpio, you'd be flabbergasted. You'd be like, that can't have been me. Because you have a very erroneous idea about who is this me. You take this me as being a psychomental things, preferences, thoughts, inclination. No, no. Me, I am a very lonely person. No, many of you, there are a few of you here in this room who will say I spend a lot of time in my bungalow and I'm generally a lonely person. I'm a loner. Can you guarantee that it was the same in the previous life and in the next one? Therefore, can you guarantee that being a loner, a solitary person, is really part of your soul? That's your immortal soul? That's who you are? No. It's just a psychomental feature which momentarily, right now, in this life, is grafted on you. But it's not really you. It's still an attribute. It's an epithet of you. And that's why when we think about what really survives, that's something which survives is something which is not our little preferences. That's why when people truly realize, like I have seen my previous lives, I have seen the past, the present and the future, I have seen realization, I have seen reality with a capital R, I've seen life. For many people, it's like an ultimate let go. You have to detach yourself like Kali is dancing fiercely on you and is crushing you down to atoms. There is nothing left of what you think is you. What we most of the time think is me or the self is not the self. It's still a layer of the self which we describe. And it's true there is something which survives. But that something is something so abstract. It is something so general that many people would say, well then why call it me? Why call it me? Because it's like Shiva. It's like cosmic consciousness. It's like Atman which is equal to Brahman. You know, It's like, what, what is this me? And then people realize, if I want to let go of me and become Brahman, the absolute consciousness, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. If I want to let go of me and become Shiva, become God, I actually have to let go of pretty much everything. You can't keep anything. 
that's one of the half sentences of Abhinavagupta. He says, don't take anything, don't let go of anything. Just stay as you are and watch as the truth is. I'm not quoting word by word. I'm just giving the gist of that. So coming back to our story, that's why in Buddhism there exists this very dangerous, very alarming sentence where it says, how can anyone be free from the self? Because that's like the goal. That's like nirvana. But for many people, that sounds like suicidal, nihilistic. Like, how do I want to be free from the self? Because, for example, the Shaivas of Kashmir, they say, aham, aham, I, I am, I am Shiva. There is an I-ness. The supreme subjective reality of this universe is the I of God, the I-ness of God. I am. No, God speaks to Moses and Moses says, Who are you, O God? And he says, I am he that I am. I am the I am. That's the only thing which can I can express about. I am the I-ness of existence. And this, therefore, it's something very subtle. Because Buddha has been a little bit more radical. He has been like a surgeon who has been afraid that the tumor might have spread in the neighboring tissues. And then he has cut a bit deeper when extirpating the tumor. He simply said, any idea which you have a personal about a personal survival is stupid and false. There is no self. There is like you are not going to survive as a self. But you are going to say then there is no eternity in Buddhism. There is. It's called nirvana. The void. The void survives. But still, what is it? Who am I when I am the void? If I become like Buddha, who am I? You are the Buddha nature. The gurus from India, like the radical ones, Shankaracharya, or the Shaiva ones, and so on, they would say that Buddha nature of Buddha is what we in India call Atman, the Supreme Self. The problem is that Svadhisthanistic people, when they speak about Atman, they imagine it as being a psychomental entity in which you carry your preferences and people are nourishing a stupid dream, a delusional dream in which they imagine that they are going to save some of their garbage. Exactly like a rich man who imagines that he can take at least three golden coins in the coffin with him. If he's buried with some gold in his pocket, maybe he can take it to the other world. And the truth is you can't take anything from this world to the other world. And that's why this delusion has to be cut. Buddha is very merciless. Buddha says there is no self, but in the meaning, not that there is not an eternal reality, in the meaning that that eternal reality is so different from what you call yourself, that you will miss it, you will misinterpret it. Buddha simply says what normal people say, my higher self, my soul, Save our souls. Save my soul. What soul? Most of it is going to be food for the daisies and atomized by the dance of Kali. It's not surviving. What? Something will be saved because it is immortal already. And even Kali cannot destroy that thing because it's transcendent. So there is something eternal. The Buddha nature, the void, or the Atman, Brahman, the Shiva consciousness. But Buddha has been very twisted in this when he said no self. 
because he said no self as 99% of the people believe in it. That self which people imagine is the self is going to disappear and you are clinging to a straw floating on water. You know, it's not a stable, it's not a fulcrum, it's not something stable, it's still a shifty reality, it's still something which is ephemeral. So that's why when Buddha says, how can you reach to beyond the self, to no self, he actually means this reality. He says, and how can anyone be free from the self? To be free from the self means to be free from the lower self, to be free from this changey, transient reality by leading a wretched life if he does not succeed in quenching the fires of lust. He says there are people who lead a wretched life that they mortify themselves, and it's a wretched life. You can see people who practice exceeding mortification, that their life is wretched, it's miserable, and in their eyes there is still the shining of the lust. By lust he doesn't mean only sexual desire, by lust he means desire in general, that samsara is characterized by desire. So Buddha basically says, the middle path which I discovered is the solution to rise above desire. Because otherwise you are going to push yourself into mortifications. And mortifications push you into an extreme. And that extreme sooner or later will push you in the opposite extreme. In this life you are a monk. And in next life you become a prostitute. Because you have to compensate. You need psychological compensation. And you don't remember your aspirations since you are a monk. And now you are becoming a total debauchee. You are living a total libertinism in this way. This is the message here. Buddha strictly says that extreme approaches are not what leads to nirvana. Only ignorant people think that extreme approaches can lead. Yes, extreme approaches can give a shockwave. Like you can do some fasting like we do in the rites of passage. You can do something and it gives a shock signal to the, it's like a cold shower. It can be done with a purpose somewhere in between. But it cannot be the life philosophy of a person. That that's how life should be lived. Temporary shock treatments are possible for a very punctual and clear purpose. Let us stop here for tonight because the time is up for the other activities. Uh, interiorize for a minute, trying to calm down the mind and absorb some of the wisdom of Buddha, who saw things so mathematically, so clearly. If you love rationalistic approaches to spirituality, then definitely you love Buddha's discrimination and clarity. And with this, we are preparing to end for tonight. I will continue at least for one more week with the basic teachings, with the original teachings, the words of the Buddha himself, explicitating how those fit with yoga and with tantric yoga. With this, we have finished for tonight. Namaste to all of you, and we'll see each other in other lectures satsangs meetings enough for now 
This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.